please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your tenderness. I thank you for the way that you minister to us. You gave um, everything, especially, Lord, you came that we might enjoy the life that you have always had from eternity. You took our humanity up into that and you poured out your spirit upon us that we would enjoy it even now. Lord, I pray that we would discover the life-giving springs that you would have us enjoy. I pray, Lord, that we would receive from you this morning the gift of this life and the gift of this growing way to the glory of your name. Amen. I've been uh, so blessed to spend time in the passage that I just read to you this morning. Um, I didn't expect it, but it's become for me one of the sweetest passages in John. And uh, I don't know why, it's just, it's moved me so deeply in ways that I didn't anticipate. The, the sense I have of the woman is that she is, she's somebody who, who suffered a lot, has made a lot of mistakes, who has real longings within her that uh, have led her to meet those needs and those longings in, in wrong ways, and it's hurt her. And she's been hurt by other people, too. And she's lonely. Um, I was reading recently that in this last month there was a study that came out that said that the younger generations from 18 to 22 years old is the loneliest generation that we've seen in a long time. And I thought it was because of things like cell phones and all that, you know, that be disconnecting, connecting ways <laughs> of our culture. But actually what they were saying is that it's, um, it has something to do with how this younger generation, and it's not just those, those few, I think. I actually think it's a lot more of us. They, they feel so busy and they feel so pressured to be busy. And maybe social networking is a little bit a part of that because if they're not actually doing something productive, then at least they can do that without leaving their desks, so to speak, you know? And uh, so there's just a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think there's a tremendous amount of exhaustion that comes from that. And people are so lonely. They're so hungry to relate. And they feel very disconnected. Um, and they don't know where to go to find connection. I was even feeling this a little bit last night. We went to uh, my, um, uh, some of my family out in um, the western suburbs of Illinois last night, and it was a, it was a beautiful setting on a, a hot day with, at a pool, and um, I was talking with a lot of my cousins and aunts and uncles, and I could just feel this exhaustion in them. They're all working, most of them are working in very busy jobs, very time-consuming, high-pressure jobs. And plus, the, you know, they're, they're taking their kids from place to place to place, and they're exhausted. And I felt some of that loneliness. And we were enjoying being, being in each other's company. It took us a while to sort of settle down and actually connect at some level. But I just felt the loneliness being really palpable there. I think it's an epidemic problem. I see this woman, and I, I wonder what's going on for her. And we know that as the passage goes on that she's had five husbands. She's failed, in other words. You can um, imagine, I think, that maybe one of the reasons she's there in the middle of the day, this is noontime, right? It's not the time you typically would go to get uh, water from a well. That would normally be done in the early morning hours or in the evening hours when it's cool. 
but she's there. And in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a well that's probably a little further distant from the town than according to the archeological evidence she had to go. So there's something about the way that her life has carried itself out that she feels, she actually feels like she needs to do this on her own. She needs, she's, perhaps there's been such a shame experience for her that she's got to sort of go there on her own. But the, the loneliness and the longing just sort of speaks out of the way in which John sets up this passage. It's interesting too because right before this passage, we've got a little bit from John the Baptist talking about the bridegroom. And he's portraying Jesus as the bridegroom, like the real husband of Israel, the real husband of um, the people of God. And that he's sort of like the best man. John the Baptist is the best man. And, but the bridegroom is Jesus. And then we have Jesus who, um, he's actually having to withdraw from his own people because they don't recognize him and they don't receive him. And it seems like they're even starting to mount up some sort of an investigation into his ministry in the same way that they were doing with John the Baptist. And so he's, he's headed out. He's just come off of some frustrating experiences too, like with Nicodemus in the middle of night. And Nicodemus doesn't turn to him and he comes under the, under the cloak of darkness. And Jesus is saying things like, you know, you have to come in the light. If you, if you stay in the darkness, you're still condemned. And Nicodemus, there's no sense that he is responding at that point to the revelation of God in Christ, the real bridegroom of the people of Israel. And so he, he leaves, and, and the passage from here says and he has to pass by Samaria. It's a really key word there. He has to. And that means there's a divine necessity. Typically, that's when John uses that word. God's going to do something significant. It's on, it's on a divine purpose that he's led there. He didn't have to go that way. In fact, as a, as a faithful or a, um, a kosher Jew, if you will, he probably wouldn't have wanted to go through Samaria, but he does. He's compelled to. And I think it's because, in a way, he is gathering to himself his bride. He may not have been received by his own, except for some of the few disciples who do choose to follow him. But there are others who will receive him. And anyone who does receive him, it says at the beginning of John, he gives them the power to become children of God. Not by their own strength, right? Not according to the strength of the flesh or the, the will of man, but by the will of God. That's how it happens. And Jesus is the perfect expression of the will of God. And so he's doing something he has to do according to the will of God, and he's showing up here at this well. It's a very interesting thing. You may remember that a number of the patriarchs of Israel found their wives at the well. And I think that's significant. I love how John weaves together so many different um, meanings to manifest the full salvation of God um, it's from the Jews, but it's for his bride. And that bride, she is made up of Jews and Gentiles and all the nations, anyone who responds to him, including those who have failed and who are moral failures. Jesus goes to a town on the margins to a woman who even in the town itself that's on the margins is marginalized because of how she's lived out her life. We don't really know her story. We don't know like how much of it was because she was hurt 
Maybe she was traumatized and maybe she compounded that with reenacting, reenacting it again and again. That happens a lot. We don't know her whole story, but we know that she must have been hurt. She must have been hurt by this town to, to so handle a basic function like getting water from a well in such a private way. Jesus must go there. The, the other thing I'll just, I, I notice here too is that Jesus is wearied. He's travel-wearied. He's work-wearied. He's toil-wearied at this point. I think he's probably met some of this resistance and it's exhausted him. Met some of this resistance from his people who were his own and it's tired him out. And now also it's the noontime and it's a desert area. So it's, it's really, really hot. So he's actually sapped of strength. And he sits by the well and his disciples go off to get some food and he sits by this well and then this woman comes. I love it that he's wearied like that because what is about to happen is so wonderful and this is what, this is encouraging to me because a lot of times, I don't know if you feel this way, like I, I think I've, I've been trying really hard to, to do ministry in a way that would bear some fruit and it just doesn't seem to be happening and I'm weary by that. And so sometimes I'm just, I, I got to sit down. And uh, I think we've got a well, though, that will refresh us in those situations. So anyway, Jesus sits down there. And what he does with this woman, I think, is also really beautiful. He says to her, give me a drink. And it, it, she realizes at some point that, that he's a, a Jew and a rabbi, and why would he relate to her? She notices that. And um, one of the most beautiful things that he says then is that if you knew, if you only knew who it was that was talking to you, you, all you'd have to do is ask and I would give you a spring of water that would well up to eternal life. If you only knew, all you'd have to do is ask. I love the simplicity of this. We have somebody who is alienated from home. She's been trying to make home happen in all the wrong ways. And in the aftermath of all of that, she has to even get a primal need like thirst met by herself. And um, you, you, you feel the yearning and the longing. It's almost like She's going with this jar to fill it with water, almost the same way husband after husband she looked to fill her heart with some semblance of life and refreshment because she wants to grow life. She wants to be in life. She wants to have home life. And it, again and again, it fails. And Jesus offers her the living water that will slake her thirst in such a way that she'll never thirst again. And those waters will well up like a spring. It's so simple. It, the, uh, in the temple of Israel, people had those money tables set up, and he's really mad about that. He throws those over because they think they have to buy their way in. And then he's here, and she's been trying, trying, trying. And he's saying, just ask me for some water. 
and I'll actually give you a well that has an eternal spring in it. Just ask me. It's so simple. Come to me with your empty jar. And I won't just fill it. I'll actually give you a spring. You know, the, the position of the woman here at this point is, I would, I would imagine she feels kind of vulnerable. Because um, he's starting to touch on some things to get really close to her longing and her need in her heart. And so she has a choice at that moment. Will I trust him? And will I ask? It seems too good to be true. And my heart has longed for things and hoped for things. And then it didn't happen. And it proved to be wrong. Can I trust him? And Jesus pretty much says, this is all you ever have to do is trust me. The only work we ever have to do is just entrust ourselves to him because he does all the work. And um, so she has to make a decision to trust him and to open up. Jesus is so gentle with her. He does it little by little. And um, she takes the risk and she asks him. And she says it in a kind of a half-baked way. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. So she went ahead and asked him. It doesn't matter even if you get the asking kind of wrong because she's not fully understanding, right, that he's speaking about a spiritual reality that's going to well up to eternal life. She's actually thinking, well, maybe he's actually going to give me some, some, some water. Like, I'll never have to actually fill a jar again, so to speak. And... Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that she asked a little bit off. It doesn't matter. He just said, all you have to do is ask me. You can ask kind of wrong in a way. And he still is going to minister his living waters to her. But one of the first things he does, and this is the way of the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, hasn't been poured out on the disciples at this point. So every manifestation of the life-giving Spirit right now is coming through Jesus because he's full of the Spirit. The Spirit has descended upon him and stayed with him, and the Spirit is on him without measure. It's just outpouring through him. And every word that he speaks are, 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 are life and spirit too, right? So he's ministering the Spirit to her through him, and eventually, of course, after the resurrection, he becomes a life-giving Spirit, and that, that's poured out on disciples and then in power at Pentecost. So we have a profound ability to enjoy this wellspring that he's ministering in a very personal way to this woman, and we can learn from this, but this is coming through his ministry to her right now, and the first thing he's doing is what the Spirit always does, is to minister these living waters to her. He brings conviction of sin. He does it in such a gentle and tender way. Go call your husband and come here. And at that moment, she also has a choice. Should I, should I admit that I don't have a husband and actually maybe that I've had five husbands? She says, I have no husband. She takes another risk. She makes a confession. Jesus is showing that he knows her and he's inviting her to know him. He's offering a connection. And he's doing it at the deepest levels. 
and the washing of the water of his word, of the spirit that's ministering conviction of sin, comes through him, and he, and he says, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, so what you said is true. He begins to minister to her a cleansing. Um, there's a blessing that happens the moment we're real with God, even about the things that we feel are most egregious about our failures. And so Jesus is ministering a heart that can tend to her heart without condemnation because she's bringing it into the light and he's gently washing her with the water of his word and his forgiveness. She says, I perceive you are a prophet because somehow he's actually described her. Um, there's something I want to call out here. This particular woman has had five husbands, and she realizes that he's a prophet because she didn't tell him that, and he knew it. And he named her sin and helped her bring it into the light so that it could be cleansed. The, the Samaritan people, as a culture, they had been... Um, Invaded, according to um, a lot of the commentators, this is the northern part of Israel, by five different invaders. And then what had happened, as, as Jeannie read in that first Old Testament passage, was they started to mix with other gods. And some of these other gods were called Baal and Ashtoreth. And they would worship these other gods. They also, these gods were known for things like orgy. They were, they were pagan gods. So it was all sorts of distortion about sexual reality and humanity and what does it mean to be human. And Baal was called Lord Husband even. And um, so this mixture, there was this combination of somehow still being a little bit Jewish and trying to follow God and Torah and yet also combining in these other idols and they're destructive. And here you have this woman that happened five times. And here you have this woman who, in a mysterious way, actually in her specific personal life, embodies that. I think what happens to us a lot of times, you see this often, where the brokenness of our culture manifests in an individual person. And we see this all over the place right now. Idolatry, adultery, all the brokenness, all the brokenness, all the sexual brokenness of our culture. We've served other idols and we've mixed it in with our Christianity. And Jesus is just gently saying, I know you've done that. I know you've done that. Well, she asks another question then, and some people think it's like, well, she's trying to get him out of this personal uh, engagement. It's a little too uncomfortable. Some people would say that, but I actually think what's going on here is she's asking a really good question. Well, if I've got this sin on me, how am I going to come back into a holy relationship with God? How's that going to happen? We worshiped on this mountain. You say it's in Jerusalem, but what is worship? Worship is, first of all, you have to go through an atonement process in order to be able to come into the presence of God. I think she's realizing, I, I've been alienated from life. I've been alienated from God. How am I going to come into the presence of God? We think it happens here on Mount Gerizim. You think it happens there in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, look, I've overturned the tables, and it's not going to be here. By the way, it does come from the Jews. 
It's important. <laughs> Everything, all of, the, all of the prophets and all of the Torah speaks of Jesus, and he fulfills that. In fact, one of the things that this woman doesn't know, he's living out right in front of her, is that wonderful passage from Isaiah 55 where it says, Come, you who are thirsty, and come to the waters. You who are thirsty and hungry and buy food without money, come and buy wine and milk without m price and without cost. He's living that out right in front of her. She doesn't even know that prophecy, by the way. Salvation comes from the Jews. That's really critical. But a time is coming where the, and now is, in fact, where you will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now what, what Jesus is doing is, and John is doing for the first time is he's actually introducing the Trinity. And today is Trinity Sunday. The only way to come into the presence of God is through the, the full work of Jesus. John also says, it's the witness of the blood and the water and the spirit. It's the, baptizing, the, the baptism into him. It's the cleansing of his blood that's renewed in the Eucharist. And it's also the breathing out of his spirit. All of this work that Jesus does. And he brings us in to the worship of the Father in the life of the Trinity. And that's the gift that he brings to this woman in this moment through his words and through his ministry. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. But now, this hour is coming, and it's actually here because the Father's seeking you, seeking you to worship him. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's that word again, must. What's happening here is that Jesus is showing her that the way that she can come in and the way that she can come into a conviction of right relationship with God or righteousness, this is the other work of the Holy Spirit, is by letting him who is the word, who cleanses us with his word of forgiveness and letting the spirit well up within us is how we come into worship. His body is the temple. We come into his body and we come into the fullness of his spirit and then we're in relationship with the Father and the Father's actually seeking you. He loves you so much, he's seeking you to worship him. She's like, well, I, I know about the Messiah is coming and he's saying, no, he's now here. I am he. There's that incredible word, the very first time Jesus and John says, I am. He says it seven times in the Gospel of John. And the first time is to this woman who's a marginalized woman in a marginalized country who's been hurt by her city and hurt by herself. And he's revealing himself as God become flesh. And he's right there with her and he's ministering to her the words of truth that will set her free. And he's ministering to her the forgiveness that puts her in contact with God and he's showing I am and inviting her to know God. What's really cool about this is that the living waters must be flowing. The living waters must be flowing because she leaves her jar and she goes into the city. It's like, she must have that spring in her. Something is alive in her. The, the hope that she had longed for is at some, at some level, it's starting to well up within her. 
And so the Spirit is evoking in her a witness to Jesus. And the things that he said to her, now she goes off and she, she actually becomes one of the first witnesses of the gospel. She's like those, those women who witnessed the resurrection, who go to the disciples. But she goes to her town, the same town that had alienated her, where she tried to build a home and could not find a home. She goes to that same town. So much of the grace of God has welled up within her that she starts to spread this good news. And once again, she does it kind of in a a half-baked way, but I love it. Our our witness, it can be really simple. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? That's basically what she says. She's so full of enthusiasm. She's so full of the Spirit. And she wants now to share it with the very town who had hurt her and rejected her and been complicit in the wrecking of her home. She's making her town into a place of joy now. She now has the possibility to have a home that's full of joy, as we prayed in our opening collect. And so then the whole town is coming to him. We know that the rest of the passage is the story of how that entire town is turned over to Jesus. And they embrace him. They welcome him. They ask him to make his home with them. And so he stays with them and makes his home with them for uh, three days. And that town is transformed. The disciples, by the way, they're not quite getting what the town has gotten. As they come back and they keep on trying to press him with food. And he's like, I'm full now. That weary, broken down, toil-weary Messiah, rabbi that they're trying to serve in this moment, he is so full of life. The Spirit is poured out from him into this woman. And then it's so begotten life in her from above, through him, that she then starts to spread that life in the town. And he's full of strength. He has food that the disciples don't know about. It's different from the food of the Pharisees and the food of the world that tries to work it and eke it out and make their home on their own. And he has just given it to them. And so there's a home. And there's food. I want to say something that I think is hard for me to say as a Westerner. When we just ask Jesus for the Holy Spirit and he gives it, it's so life-giving. When we just do the words that he's speaking like Jesus did, it's so life-sustaining. It can actually fill you. When we receive the Spirit, it so transforms us that our neurology can change. It so transforms us that we can actually feel sated if, even though we might not have actually had, you know, the, the food that we normally have, like donuts or whatever. Don't have donuts. There's something about really feasting on the presence of God the Holy Spirit bringing life, and the words of God, which are substantial. We can actually feast on them. They can feed us. They can fill us. Do you believe that? I believe it. Lord, help my unbelief. You know, I have my own empty jars. I have my hungers, and I have my thirsts, and sometimes they feel really, really primal. 
And I don't always come to Jesus and say, will you please release again in me the life-giving waters of your Holy Spirit? And he's saying, just ask. If you only knew who I was and what I was capable of doing, he's saying, ask. And then he's saying, trust the word that I'm giving you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the blessing of this Samaritan woman who trusted you enough to open up to you. I thank you, Lord, that when you bring conviction of sin through your spirit and your word, you do it because you love us. You do it in such a tender way so that we can, little by little, grace upon grace, come more and more into your presence. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning that there wouldn't be one single person who would not ask for the waters of life to well up within them, to bring a cleansing that would flush out any sins and self-condemnation. Lord, I pray that there would be such a gracious upwelling in each and every heart that we would come from this place and we would witness to it. We'd bear witness to it. Even if it's half-baked, Lord, we would, we would say we met God. We somehow encountered him. Could it be? Lord, I pray that your spirit would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and convict us instead of your gracious love. We pray, Lord Jesus, for this life-giving spirit to take us into the true home life that you share with the Father. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.